This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour, this first week of what might be a life-changing year for much of the world, maybe all of the world. It's 2024, and here we go. This is the Week in Review edition of Trumpet Hour. I'm here in the studio with Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. And Mihailo Zekic. Good afternoon. And we're connected online to Richard Palmer in England. Good afternoon. This week, the first week of 2024, we're going to start with the region of Anglo-America. Andrew Miller, give us a rundown of the main stories we need to be aware of. The U.S. national debt topped $34 trillion for the first time in history. House Republicans announced plans to impeach U.S. Homeland Secretary uh, Alexandro Mayorkas for the crisis at the U.S. southern border. And Donald Trump appealed the ruling borrowing him from the ballot in Maine. Some major stories there that are, are in progress. We did a video not too long ago on the national debt, and you were alerting people to the fact that it's adding $1 trillion Every 95 days, was it? Yeah, that was actually correct at the time I filmed that video, and then I did the math that it was supposed to cross $34 trillion sometime in February. Right. And it did this week, so it's the amount of debt being added has sped up substantially. That could change 2024 right there. The, the debt is insane. I remember worrying when it hit $14 trillion and now we're at 34 But go ahead and give us the main story this week that's come out. The main story this week is something that a number of people have been waiting on for quite a while. The U.S. court system has released hundreds of court documents connected to the U.S. sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. Contrary to uh, some speculation early on, these documents are not actually Epstein's client list. I'm sure there would have been a slew of judges committing suicide uh, across America if they were actually preparing to release Epstein's client list because that it would be quite extensive. But it's almost 200 names of business associates of Epstein, some clients of Epstein, a lot of the people accusing Epstein's clients of sexual abuse. And so even though it's not the client list, it is one of our first major developments in investigating what's been an open secret in Washington since the 90s that Jeffrey Epstein was running a sex trafficking ring connected to many high-profile politicians. I think the only two really big names you've probably heard of that were singled out in the latest batch were former U.S. President Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew. The reference to Bill Clinton actually didn't accuse him of a specific crime. It just included testimony saying that he prefers his women young. The testimony related to Prince Andrew had some allegations of groping with a minor while at a party thrown by Epstein, stuff that's pretty believable in the fact that the royal family has already stripped Prince Andrew of all of his royal duties due to previous allegations of things he'd done with Jeffrey Epstein, really highlighting uh, just how, (laughs) how deep into the power structures of both America and this Britain, this man ingrained himself, where you're, you're looking at the son of the former Queen of England and former President of the United States, both who'd been on this man's plane, been to this man's island, 
we know from other court cases that he had homes in New York and New Mexico, an island in the Caribbean where he commonly threw parties for well-connected politicians across America and Britain, where just some vile things were occurring even with women in their late teens. This is obviously a sickening story to talk about, and we're avoiding speaking about it in plain terms, I think. This shows that we're sick. This society, its its leadership is definitely sick. It's a, it's a condemning fact that it has been an open secret. People have talked about it. You'll see clips from Cindy McCain or somebody, you know, saying, yeah, we all know that he's bad, that he was doing some bad things. And, but that has consequences, certainly for the victims, I mean, for the rest of their lives and for the, the nation that people like this are the leaders of. It's a, a horrific fact that people are starting to get used to. And I think the people behind that want people to get used to that idea because, as we said in the Trump meeting earlier, if this comes out 10 years ago, people would just blow up in, in anger. But you see a, a progressive normalization of all kinds of sexual perversions and sins. And I don't know, we're getting used to the idea that this is happening behind the scenes in Washington and New York and Silicon Valley. What's your perspective on this? You prepared a, a kind of a conclusion here that gives us a bit of a biblical perspective. Yeah, I think well, one of the things is showing how deep the corruption is in America as it's taken as long as it has to start getting these client lists. If the court system would have just gone gangbusters after Epstein got his client list, released it to the public, I mean, there would probably been riots in the streets. Instead, what they've done is just like piecemeal little by little over years giving you we're getting the full story, but it's happening so slowly that right. the shock value is wearing off. Right. So now whenever you, like like something like this happens and you're like Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton were involved with Jeffrey Epstein, it's like, okay, we, we've heard rumors about that for years. Right. It's not really shocking anymore. Be uh, shocked. A huge part of the strategy is to try to avoid the shock and the anger that a, a normal human being should have at these accusations. That's why, I mean, in, in my opinion, I'll just speak for myself, that's why you've had entertainments from Netflix and so forth that's kind of crossed this line of sexualizing children because then the shock value is directed there, it wears off, and then when you get these real allegations and, and eventually evidence and proof of these horrendous things that have been committed you're not shocked enough to change anything, you're not shocked enough to do anything more than type a little tweet and be done with it. I think there's a really important point that you're making there, just connecting it to the wider society. Like it reminds me of one scandal we had in the UK with the Rotherham child abuse, where you had gangs right. of Asian men abusing 13-year-old girls. And a major reason they were allowed to get away with that was political correctness. Another massive reason, though, was this decline in morality. Like the police, the response from them was, well, if a 13-year-old wants to work as a prostitute... Well, that's her decision. Who am I to judge? It's insane. It's twisted. It's, but, but that was just, that was fundamentally embedded across the system. But if a 13-year-old girl is allowed to decide that she's a boy and chop parts off her body and undergo irrevocable, I mean, how's that any different? Right. And it is all part of this whole movement. They're all, I mean, the Bible labels all of this, you know, transgenderism, homosexuality, it calls it all perversion. It's one umbrella that covers all of it. 
And I think you're absolutely right to connect it all and say, well, yeah, of course, if everybody's being told what a five-year-old boy can decide that he's a girl, well, then a five-year-old can decide to engage in other adult activities. That's really the logic of this movement. And when you put it like that, it's clear that it's twisted and wrong, but few people think it through so directly. And if there are thousands or maybe millions of people watching Euphoria and Cuties on Netflix or whatever and entertaining themselves with this kind of filth, then that has a consequence. That absolutely has a consequence. Yeah, the Bible puts this in pretty stark terms. One of the prophecies we'll highlight today is a prophecy that's highlighted in the article put in the show notes titled The Perverting Ruling Class, where it goes through Ezekiel 8, where there's a really kind of some stark imagery in Ezekiel 8, where, where metaphorically God's having Ezekiel go to the temple and peer. he goes through a door and then peers through a hole. So he's like spying and he sees all the elders of Israel like into idolatry and there's these beasts and there's these creeping things and all things hidden from the people. The people don't know all this idolatry and perversion is going on amongst the ruling class. And the article like links it to the fact that anyone who's seen anything on the Hunter Biden laptop or looked at any court documents regarding Jeffrey Epstein, it's like you're in Ezekiel's spot in that door peeking through that hole. And you don't see the whole picture because it's a small hole. Um, but you're seeing uh, just perversion that people would be shocked because these elders, they're doing this in the dark. And in that verse, they even say to themselves that like the Lord sees us not like acting like even God can't see what they're doing. It's like God can see what they're doing. And there's other scriptures that indicate that he's going to want a good bit of the American people to see what they're doing before this is all over. That's right. It's the perverted ruling class. It starts with mixing, if you go back historically, it starts with mixing, compromising, polluting pure religion, in other words, truth, and it proceeds to polluting entertainment, and it proceeds to polluting children. This has a consequence. We like to think of religion and sin and so forth and as some other kind of category, and then there's real life. They're the same thing. They're, they're connected. And look how horrific a sin, that's just what it is, can be when it spreads throughout entertainment, throughout society, and then throughout your children. That's the perverted ruling class. You can find that on thetrumpet.com. Our next region is going to be Europe. Mr. Palmer, give us an update on Europe, if you would, sir. Yes, there's a couple of interesting debates within Germany that have caught my eye this week. The first is about nuclear weapons. There's been more and more discussion within the German press, within former German leaders, about the use of nuclear weapons, whether Germany should get nuclear weapons. So the former foreign minister, Joska Fischer, he talked about this with an interview in Die Zeit. There was a retired professor who was also a well-known author over in Germany, Herfried Munkler, who also talked about the need to have some kind of European nuclear weapon. He talked about a suitcase with a red button that would circulate among major EU countries. The Frankfurter Allemang, the Sonntag Zeitung, the Sunday paper, that talked about the need for Europe to have nuclear weapons within the context of what will Europe do if Donald Trump wins. And this is really the context of a lot of this debate. The Weltam Sonntag, they had an article as well. So this is 
in some ways, Germany talking about nuclear weapons, okay, how's that new? You know, there have been rumblings about should we get nuclear weapons? You can go all the way back to Franz Joseph Strauss back in the 60s and 50s, I think maybe even before, talking about Germany needs a nuclear weapon. But it is that can't hide the fact or uh, blind us to the fact that this is becoming a broadening discussion, that more and more people from different parts of the political spectrum are speaking up here and saying we should have a nuclear weapon. And Joska Fischer in particular he, as of when he was in power, he was in favor of denuclearizing NATO. He was talking about getting American nuclear weapons out of Europe. He's kind of come around now so far to the opposite point of view that he's saying, well, actually, we need to have our own nuclear weapons. And this is basically in favor of Russia and also this growing awareness that Europe and America are kind of on different pages and Europe is no longer willing to let America protect them anymore. They want to be able to stand up, do their own thing. And so they want nuclear weapons. And then another debate that it's the same thing. It's something that's kind of it's always there as background chatter. But you had a few more senior people talk about it this week. And that is about conscription. So the German defense minister, Boris Pistorius, he said that ending conscription was a mistake and that Germany should then look at ways to bring back conscription. And this is largely because... Germany's struggling to recruit a big enough army. He wants more soldiers, more fighting men. It's part of this pattern where you're having conscription being talked about or reintroduced in countries like Poland, Lithuania, and Scandinavian countries out of fear of Russia. They thought they could get rid of this after the Cold War and save some money and and save recruiting all of their young people into the army. But they're starting to realize, no, we're in a dangerous world and we need more of a military force. So both of those stories ties into this trend that we've watched, the rise of of Europe militarizing, even to the ultimate point of getting nuclear weapons. That's something you can read about on our trends section of our website. Interesting debate about nuclear weapons when Germany has access to American nuclear weapons already in the nuclear sharing NATO arrangement, as well as stealth F-35s to put them on. So when you add that context, you understand that they really want their own. It's not that they have no access to nuclear weapons. They have no relationship with half of the world <laughs> that has at least pledged to help them should Russia attack Europe. That's not enough, in other words. And you add that to the $100 billion fund that's, I don't know, taken a while to get spent for the military, the increase in annual spending as a percentage of GDP on the military, And you see a clear trend, a a strengthening trend that over the past couple of years that was not there before. What's the main story out of Europe this first week of the year? So my main story is that nothing much happened on New Year's Eve. That is the impression that you would get from the mainstream media. You checked your news and there was a lot of stories about fears of violence or even terrorist attacks and the run up to that. And you check on January 1st, January 2nd and well, quiet night, less than expected then when you look into the statistics, it's interesting. You know, In Berlin, they detained only about 400 people and only began 700 potential criminal investigations. Only 54 policemen were injured. In Paris, only 745 cars were set on fire. It starts to become pretty absurd pretty quickly. What happened is, yes, it was down. All of these figures were down from last year. So France, it was down by 10% from last year, for example. So this is what is touted as a massive victory. 10% fewer cars were torched 
in France year on year. A mostly what, peaceful it, New Year's Eve. Yes, that's exactly that is exactly what we're talking about here. And what is often not emphasized either is this this ten percent decrease was achieved by a massive police presence. You know, you look at just about every European capital of Berlin, Paris, they had record numbers of police. More one of the biggest police operations they've had in years to deal with it. And it's that's the story is we're just kind of migrant violence on New Year's Eve is kind of becoming normalized. And the media is trying to downplay that and normalize to the point that in Brussels, if there's a fire on New Year's Eve, they take one of their old clankers out to go deal with it. They don't want to take one of their new fire engines because they know that it's that they're going to get fireworks shot at it and it's going to get attacked. So they're just dealing with it. But it's all across Europe. The Dutch police arrested 200 people. 100 cars were burned in Rotterdam. Brussels arrested 200. And... In just about all of these articles, the word immigrants, the word migrants, it's not there. You have to be a bit on the know. Or you have to be experiencing on, on the ground to know what is really happening here. They used to talk about it more. It was it was downplayed, but you'd at least find phrases like, well, it's some, this violence took place in a Muslim-majority neighborhood. Right. These days, some of these articles about France don't even mention the neighborhood because they know that people know that Saint-Denis is like a Muslim-African immigrant neighborhood, so they don't mention them. Now, of course... It's New Year's Eve. People are drunk and they have fireworks. It's not like 100% of these are coming from migrants. Uh, There is just a lot of crime and dangerous activity anyway when you put some of those things in combination. But they really don't want people to cotton on to what is happening here. Right. I think it's such a stark symbol. That's why maybe it's being blacked out. I remember a couple of your New Year's Eves ago in Germany, in Berlin, there was the, the major immigrant presence in, in a public place. I believe it was in Berlin. And, I think uh, it was Köln, if, if it's the oh, same Oh, was it? One. Okay, yeah. And, oh, and Cologne, it was just completely sorry. blacked out. The German media would not talk about it. But on social media and elsewhere, you see the images, the video clips. I saw one from Italy where it was a swarm. Like it, That's the best way to describe it. Just the enormous number of young men without families, without girlfriends, just climbing up on the public space in some Italian city. It might have been Milan and climbing up on the monuments and so forth and, you know, just making their presence known, as you say, that some of the making the presence known involves violence and setting cars on fire and and so forth. So you mentioned that, you know, in in one way you could look at this as not a big deal and the press is kind of portraying this as not a big deal. Why is this a big deal? I think the fact that the press do work so hard to cover it up shows what a good big deal it is in some way. Like, they know that this is explosive. They know that this would make people angry if they knew the truth. And so they work very hard to not report on it. And because it, it this is you know, multiculturalism, open borders, this is one of their cherished shibboleths that they do not want to let go of. And in doing so, though, I mean, really, you know, truth will out. You, you don't get anywhere really in the long run by hiding the truth. And they may convince themselves that they're doing this for the greater good and that they're covering it up and they're in the goal of community harmony and you know, not wanting to rock the boat and that kind of thing. But ultimately, what are you doing? You're making people, you're training people not to trust the media. You're creating an environment where lies spread, where people can believe all kinds of things. I mean, going back to Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein, 
like this morning trying to get to the bottom of this, what was on the Epstein documents when I was writing that up for the morning brief or yesterday morning was really hard because people were sharing you know, the mainstream media. You kind of you don't really trust them. And then on Twitter, people were sharing fake images. Right. And names, And there were there were names circling like, oh, this guy's name was all over. And it wasn't. They, they, they just made it up. But you kind of feel like, well, where can I go to get the truth from that? And if people try, if the media had acted honestly, then I don't think there would be any currency for people to make up a name and say it was on there. Right. And so you're, you're setting this whole atmosphere of distrust. I mean, really, they're spreading disinformation and they're making it so much easier for people to spread disinformation because we just, yeah, it comes from anyway. That's just one aspect of this. But I had an article in the Trumpet Print last year, Europe's Altered Personality, that just really talked about the way that Europe's personality is changing in response to this. And the media may try to hide it, but this is changing. You know, people have real, genuine, honest concerns, completely understandable concerns about immigration because of these very real problems. But mainstream politicians and mainstream media won't talk about it. And so they're going to places like the Alternative for Deutschland, and they're going to places like you know, some of these far-right groups. And I read some of the material that comes out from magazines affiliated with the Alternative for Deutschland. Like, if you read those, you would not be relaxed or sanguine about the idea of Germany getting nuclear weapons. Talk about fake news spreading. Like, their version of World War II history and America's role in World War II, it's a warped world where Eisenhower was locking Germans in concentration camps and mass executions of Germany. And Germany's the victim of an authoritarian American expansionism. And these are the powers that people are turning to because they're the only ones that are talking about migration. So it's pushing Europe into a, a really dangerous direction. And it's changing fundamentally the role that even Europe plays in the world. And, and so that article, Europe's Altered Personality, gets into that in some more detail. I think that's a good one to point to, Europe's Altered Personality, as well as what you mentioned earlier, the trumpet.com slash trends. You can see the major threads of what's happening kind of combining and clashing with one another uh, to mix the metaphor. On the trumpet.com slash trends, uh, you'll notice that there's actually a timeline. If you go to, say, Iran and Europe on a, headed for a clash of civilizations, you click on that under the first couple paragraphs there, you'll see a timeline where all the daily updates that we're writing for in briefs and so forth on the trumpet.com that relate to that trend are there in a timeline. And just clicking on that and just scrolling without even reading or clicking on those articles, just scrolling through all those headlines is quite a witness in itself. That's at the trumpet.com slash trends. Next region is Asia. Jeremiah Jacques, Asia has been in the news on social media and so forth this week. What have been the big stories that have caught your eye? Yeah, well, the year for Asia got off to a really rocky start. For Japan, that rocky start was literal with a 7.6 magnitude earthquake that killed at least 73 people, injured dozens more, uh, tens of thousands of homes were also destroyed, and power has been out for large swaths of the nation. And then just across the Sea of Japan in South Korea, there was a brutal assassination attempt. The leader of South Korea's opposition party, a man named Lee Jae-myung, he was stabbed in the neck. 
He was uh, airlifted to a hospital and he's now recovering in intensive care. But the political infighting in South Korea often concerns questions about whether to lean more toward the U.S. or more toward military independence or even more toward China. So there could be some big ramifications from something like this. And in any case, it was just a horrifying event for the South Koreans, really rocked the nation there. And then the Taiwanese also started the year with some real turmoil. First of all, Chinese President Xi Jinping gave his New Year's address just using some of the strongest language we've heard about what he called the inevitability of China conquering Taiwan. Later that same day, the Taiwanese detected a Chinese spy balloon flying over their nation. This is very much like the one that crossed over the U.S. early last year. And for Taiwan, this is the first time that China has sent one of these balloons into their airspace. So it's likely some kind of reconnaissance project and could very well be connected to Chairman Xi Jinping's calls to conquer Taiwan. So we're only a few days into 2024, but it's off to a very rocky start. Right. With so many of those things, especially communist China conquering Taiwan, I, I really wonder, is 2024 the year? Like this this might be the year that something happens in, between Russia and Ukraine that's really definitive. That's the subject of your main story. That's right. Yes. And even if you look at just, you know, the first few days of the year here, the big story is that Russia's air attacks against Ukraine are really intensifying. We spoke on the show last Friday about Russia launching a massive onslaught of missiles and drones at Ukraine. That assault ended up killing dozens of civilians and injuring about 160 others. And these were fired at, you know, civilian targets in Ukraine, which means several children were among the dead and wounded. And it turns out that was only the start of an intense escalation in these kinds of attacks. The very next day, these attacks from Russia continued with dozens of missiles and drones fired once again. Then there were um, many more over the next two days as well. And then on Tuesday, Russian forces brought these up to a new level again. They launched almost 100 missiles and 35 drones against civilian targets in Kiev, Kiev Oblast, and Kharkiv. Ukraine's air defenses intercepted most of these, but some of Russia's missiles were able to penetrate the defenses, and, and they killed and injured dozens more civilians, including more children. So if you put all the data together over the last five days, it comes to 500 missiles and drones that Russia has launched at Ukraine, 500 in five days. The total death count from these attacks is around 60 and once again, these are all civilians, from what I can tell. They're people in apartment buildings, people who are just sleeping in most cases, since the attacks generally come in the early hours of the morning. And it does look like Russia is getting more skilled at maximizing the damage of these launches. They'll, first, they'll fire a wave of drones, and that forces Ukraine to empty a bunch of their defense systems. And then after Ukraine has kind of depleted its batteries, then Russia will immediately fire a wave of far faster flying missiles, including hypersonic missiles, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles. Some of these are able to change direction in the air mid-flight. So that causes further headaches for Ukraine's air defense. And that's really the purpose, just to overwhelm Ukraine's air defenses so that more can get through and strike apartment buildings and other targets. But with Russia, it's always about quantity, sending as much as they can to overwhelm Ukraine's air defense systems, and some of them are going to get through. As Russia continues to just blow up apartment buildings, 100% completely civilian areas. This is not 
falling debris from shot down missiles. This is what the missiles were targeting. That was uh, analyst Jake Bro there, just explaining Russia's strategy with these intensifying aerial assaults. And it's just very sobering to see this happening night after night. Just another sign of an extremely rocky start to 2024. And it doesn't look like there's much reason to expect this situation to change anytime soon. Well, when you said last week that it was the, the biggest barrage in the history of this particular war, that was notable. But to find out that it's been continuing 505 days, you said? That's right. It is horrific when, when you think of the fact that these are landing on or hitting apartment buildings and communities and urban areas. What's the upshot? Well, I would say mostly this looks like it could be just a new phase in the war, a new focus for the Russians. And it just shows that Russian President Vladimir Putin is still unwavering in his drive to conquer Ukraine. And one thing that we can know as we continue through this year is that whatever may happen this week or this month or even this year, Bible prophecy shows that Putin will come out of it politically intact and even empowered. The scriptures show that he personally will play a role in some much bigger wars soon. And the editor-in-chief of the Trumpet News magazine, Mr. Gerald Flurry, has written a booklet all about that, those prophecies. It's called The Prophesied Prince of Russia. That's The Prophesied Prince of Russia. You can get that at thetrumpet.com. If you are not already aware, every single thing at thetrumpet.com is completely free. And it's free not only of a credit card page or a suggested love offering donation or anything like that. It's free of follow-up. It's free of, it really is truly free. There are dozens of titles, dozens of books and booklets and, and other resources there where you can read booklets, books, articles that connect what's happening now to the Bible and prove for yourself whether that is a valid and strong connection. It, you'd be surprised at how specific Many of those are and how uh, detailed and, and how sobering they are. The next region is the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, you've been watching the Middle East as always. How has 2024 started off in that region? Well, just like Asia, it started off with a bang, in some cases literally. On January 1st, first day of the year, the Israeli Supreme Court made their verdict against Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's reasonableness bill official. We talked about that when the draft ruling was leaked last week, but now it's official. We'll see how this impacts Israeli society in the days to come. On the second, more news uh, with Israel. The Israeli Defense Forces killed Hamas's second-in-command Salah al-Aruri in Beirut, Lebanon, with a drone strike. Uh, Hezbollah vowed to retaliate. Uh, their Secretary General Hassan Azrala later came with a speech that, like his last one, tried to talk tough without actually doing anything in response. And then on Wednesday, there were twin explosions in a large crowd in the city of Kerman in Iran, which was the site of a commemoration of the anniversary of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian super general that President Trump famously took out. The death toll is still a little bit unknown. The best we can figure out is roughly around 95. The Iranians themselves said they accidentally counted some bodies twice. We know ISIS did it. They didn't really like Soleimani so much for pushing them out of Iraq. There's a lot of unknowns, but yes, a lot going on in the Middle East for the new year. But, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Israel hitting 
Beirut is pretty significant. That's pretty deep into Lebanon. It's the capital city of Lebanon, if I'm not mistaken. That's a bold move that could result in escalation. But like you said, interestingly, Hezbollah so quick to escalate so many times in the past, not doing so at least to this point. What's your main story? Well, the main story may not seem like as important as some of the other ones, but I'm going to show you why it is. On Monday, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed reached a deal with Somaliland, not Somalia, but Somaliland, where he would get roughly 12 miles of the coastline, at least under lease, to build an Ethiopian naval base on the Red Sea. If you've never heard of Somaliland before, there's a reason for that. If you can imagine the Horn of Africa, that little part on the eastern edge that juts out into the Red Sea, Somaliland is that little bit right on the edge of the Red Sea where it meets the Indian Ocean. It declared independence from Somalia in 1991. Nobody's recognized it since then except Taiwan, which, of course, most countries don't recognize anyway. For those that have been listening on the program quite often, Ethiopia is one of those interesting regions where a lot seems to happen for a while and like civil wars, genocides even, and it never seems to end. We might get used to it. We talked a lot on this program on the Tigray War and Ethiopia's war against the ethnic groups there. There's so many ethnic tensions in Ethiopia. Ethiopia's been trying to get an outlet to the Red Sea for a long time. They tried to with their neighbor Eritrea and Eritrea didn't follow through. Looks like this is Ahmed's way of getting his port on the Red Sea despite that. Why is this important? Why is this my main story compared to all the other stuff I've been talking about? Well, for one hand, the rest of the world, again, except for Taiwan, recognizes Somaliland as sovereign Somali territory. Somalia, which is a bit of a failed state in and of itself, but they've withdrawn their ambassador from Ethiopia. They said they consider this a violation of their sovereignty and they're going to respond accordingly. There's thousands of Ethiopian troops in Somalia right now to help fight radical Islam. There's a lot of analysts that are looking at Ahmed's expansion into the Red Sea and seeing what's going on with Eritrea. He originally tried to make friends with that country, and the relations have since soured. Some people are suspecting maybe this is his way of getting ready to go to war with Eritrea to get his Red Sea port. If he's not going to get it through a deal, maybe there's going to be another war coming along. This would be the equivalent, to put this into perspective, this would be the equivalent of South Korea recognizing Taiwan. If that ever happened, what do you think China is going to say and what do you think North Korea is going to say? In this case, you could say China is like Somalia and North Korea is like Eritrea. Obviously, the comparison is down after a while. Those aren't nearly as big countries. But we talked about the Red Sea and the, what the Houthis are doing there for a while. This is a really strategic part of the world. What happens if both sides of the Red Sea all of a sudden become destabilized? What happens if no part of that trade route is safe to navigate? And Ethiopia itself has like about 120 million people. It's a huge country. The Tigray War that I just mentioned, some analysts estimate up to 600,000 people died in that, which makes it the deadliest conflict contained within the 21st century. Again, who knows what's going to happen from this. It's too early to tell. But when you have countries violating other countries' sovereignty, or at least other countries saying that they're feeling violated, when you have countries led by people like Ahmed, who we've talked about on this program before, have been implicated in genocide, this kind of stuff can't be ignored right away, especially when it's on such a strategic point as the Red Sea, especially with what we're seeing on the other side of the Red Sea right now. Right. The Red Sea is the focus of a lot of people who are interested in international news, geopolitics, who know the importance of the global commercial circulatory system that goes right through the Red Sea. 
And I think that surely this has to also be attracting the attention of powers who are more powerful, not only than Somaliland or Eritrea, which used to be part of Ethiopia, if I'm not mistaken, and Somalia. If all of these are, are struggling to, to get some control, some sort of ability to project power into the, into the Red Sea, what other powers might be interested in just coming right over the top of all of that and taking control? Well, Monday was actually another unique day for Ethiopia. That's also when it officially joined the BRICS block. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. They invited a lot of other countries too. Ethiopia is normally considered an ally of the U.S., one of the few countries there that the U.S. could reliably partner with terrorism. Ethiopia doesn't really like the U.S. right now because of its stance against all the things Ahmed has been doing. And so you're seeing countries like Russia and China take advantage of it. Africa's second largest population, the headquarters of the Africa Union. It's a really strategic country. Another country that recently joined BRICS is Iran. That's a country, obviously, we fall in this program quite a bit. But you're seeing all these countries that don't like the United States coalesce around each other. And it focuses on areas like the Red Sea, these vitally important trade routes. It may not look like it at this point, but we expect... Ethiopia to side with Iran in the future. There's a prophecy in Daniel 11 verses 40 to 43, which talks about a king of the south pushing at a king of the north. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, for decades has identified the king of the south as Iran and his northern counterpart as Catholic-led Europe. Verse 43 specifies that Ethiopia will be conquered by the king of the north, which implies they're in league with Iran. You could read the rest of the prophecy going into Daniel 12, showing this starts World War III. This is serious. This is not just a localized conflict. How a, a Christian-majority country like Ethiopia could get second to Iran at this point remains to be seen. But when you see saber-rattling about war, when you see countries accusing each other of invading their own countries, when you see these areas that are already unstable, like the Red Sea, become even more unstable, this could play a huge part in how that prophecy is fulfilled. If our listeners would like to learn more, I wrote an article way back when for the November, December 2021 print edition called Is Ethiopia's Civil War an End Time Prophecy? That's Is Ethiopia's Civil War an End Time Prophecy? It's a little bit dated. It talks more about the Tigray War. But again, Ethiopia is not a part of the world we talk about too often, whether in the mainstream media or on this program. So that article would do a good job in filling the reader up to speed on why Ethiopia is important, how unstable it's getting, and where we can expect it to go in the future. That's Mihailo Zekic updating you on the Middle East and Africa and recommending for your consideration is Ethiopia's civil war in end time prophecy. You're listening to Trumpet Hour KPCG 101.3 FM in Edmond, Oklahoma. We'll be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour here on KPCG. I'm here with Jeremiah Jacques, Mihailo Zekic, Andrew Miller, and Richard Palmer, staff writers for the Trumpet Magazine and for thetrumpet.com. We're going to bring you a roundtable here that focuses on trends that people have not focused on enough. Some of these really came into full bloom in 2023, some of them still in progress heading into 2024. 
Mihailo Zekic, you were updating us on the Middle East. Give us a trend that we can watch heading into 2024, something that people have been overlooking. Well, this one isn't specifically about the Middle East, but it affects the whole world as history has proven. So, And I have a personal connection to it, so I'm going to claim it anyway. And that's what's happening in the Balkans. Everybody's focusing, if you talk about a European war and what's going on in Ukraine, etc. There's been a lot of saber rattling in Serbia, specifically, where the Serbian government has been moving troops to the border of Kosovo and then withdrawing them, then moving them, withdrawing them, which is exactly what Russia did right before they invaded Ukraine and exactly what Azerbaijan did right before they invaded Armenia. Serbia is also surrounded by NATO countries, so a lot of people are thinking, oh, they wouldn't dare do it. But there's been also a lot of political instability there. There was a recent parliamentary election there. A lot of people are crying foul and they want the government to resign. Otto von Bismarck, in a slightly censored quote, famously said that one day the great European war will come out of some foolish thing in the Balkans. World War I followed with a bunch of instability there. And World War II, while it wasn't directly connected to the start, it did contribute to the war's escalation. Serbia is obviously really close to Russia. Russia has been trying to prod Serbia to side it more with Ukraine. If the current government there feels like it doesn't have a mandate from the voters anymore, if the current government feels threatened, maybe they would feel like reaching out to Putin is the only option they have. And for Putin's perspective, what better way to distract Europe from giving weapons to Ukraine than to trigger another Balkan crisis right in Europe's heart? Again, it's maybe not the most obvious flashpoint that people are watching, but it's certainly one that can't be overlooked. It's certainly one that's caused trouble in the world time and time and time again. Those problems haven't fixed for hundreds of years, and it's not going to be fixed anytime soon, at least in the near term. So that's something certainly I think people should be keeping an eye on. And Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry identified the Balkans as the first military victim, right, of World War III, right? So this is a, a flashpoint to keep an eye on for sure. Jeremiah Jacques, what's your underrated trend? Yeah, I think a really big one from last year and to watch for in 2024 is the end of globalization. You know, after World War II, the United States created the greatest military alliance in all of history. That was how America contained and defeated the Soviet Union. And along with that military alliance came an environment of global security that let anyone in the alliance go anywhere around the world at any time and interact with any other nation, you know, in basically any economic way they wanted to. They could all take part in every supply chain, have access to every material input. And all of those nations could do that without even requiring a military escort. So this is something that we all just take for granted today. But this model that the U.S. built was entirely unprecedented. And it brought industrialization and development to many regions on the globe. And it built all of the mass consumption societies and the torrents of trade and all the technological you know, progress that we find so familiar in the world today, it made everything much cheaper and faster. It extended lifespans and prompted urbanization. But now it's coming to an end. Nations like China are tired of being the world's factory for cheap labor. And Americans are getting tired of being the world's policemen. You know, Republicans and Democrats alike are working to reduce America's military footprint There's no other nation that has the military power to maintain global security and trade the way America did. So the American order is ending and instead disorder is taking over. And and this means globalization is coming to a rapid end, which has huge implications for the global economy. And the end of globalization also means 
global security is coming undone. And, and 2024 could be a very big year for that. There was an op-ed on Tuesday in the Wall Street Journal. One part of it said, the next president will need to rally a dubious electorate to support Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan amid the most dangerous international moment in recent memory. So there it is. We're at the most dangerous international moment in recent memory. And that means we have uh, a lot to keep a vigilant eye on in 2024. Absolutely. This something's going to break this year. <laughs> That's what I'm feeling. And I, such a good point to, to realize how underrated, how overlooked, how taken for granted this entire system by which you order something <laughs> on on a retail website and expect to have it at your door the next day. That's the end result of it. This enormous supply chain that we just take for granted exists, mm -hmm. flows through the Red Sea and other choke points uninhibited. And when that breaks down or, or the many other things that are connected to that global system are up for grabs, then it's going to be a different world. I mean, you, everyone's life is going to change. Andrew Miller, what's uh, your underrated trend? My vote for the most underrated trend currently unfolding on the world scene is Pope Francis's support for the BRICS Economic Alliance. One of the most prestigious Vaticanologists in the world is John Allen Jr. He wrote an article earlier this year entitled Brick by Brick, The Foundation for the Pope's Geopolitical Endgame is Being Laid. I had a fascinating statement in there where he says, in the future, August 2023 may come to be seen as a turning point in paving the way for Vatican relations with both China and Saudi Arabia, and more broadly in the Vatican's transition away from being perceived as a pillar of Western civilization to being a genuinely global and non-aligned institution, as equidistant from Washington and Brussels as from Moscow and Beijing. So he's saying there that, like, so the Pope's basically trying to transform the world economy, supporting uh, China, which is in the BRICS alliance, Saudi Arabia, which just joined, and trying to make the world economy basically less Western, which is a, a, a euphemism for less free market, less capitalist, less American. And this is where Bible prophecy comes in useful, is he's claiming that the Pope's moving away from America and Europe towards Russia and China. Where in reality, if you understand the Mart of Nations from Isaiah 23, is the Pope is going to be leading Europe away from America and towards an economic relationship with Russia and China, where you've got, um, you've got this global Mart of Nations, which Revelation 18 indicates is led largely by the Catholic Church, but involving nations like Russia and China and these Eastern nations really working together against the United States. That's one of the biggest threats. Probably one of the worst things that could actually happen to the United States is to have every other nation team up against it in an economic alliance. But that is happening. And you, you do hear a lot of news articles these days about the BRICS fighting against America. You don't hear as many about Europe joining with the BRICS. But Pope Francis is really leading them to do that, trying to get the European nations, the Catholic nations, to join in with this other Eastern bloc against America and Britain and their uh, unique economic system as outlined by Adam Smith. That's an interesting trend, I, something that was definitely under my radar. Mr. Palmer, what about your underrated trend? Whoa. 
or rather wars that people aren't paying attention to. I think war, especially the war in Israel, has been the big story. There have been a number of ones that have flown under the radar. Mihailo in the first half talked about some of the things going on in Ethiopia, and you've got some major conflicts going on in Africa. And I think one of the big trends of the last 30 years, say, has been frozen conflicts. This is one of the massive trends of the post-Cold War era. The borders for a lot of the a lot of Europe were fixed after World War II. They didn't necessarily make much sense, but that's the way that they were, and we kind of lived with it. We decided after World War II, we don't want to go around adjusting borders. That can be bad. Then you have the Soviet Union falls apart. You have more borders being drawn, and they're drawn in ways that ang- get people angry. And in fact, it's not really even possible to draw them in ways that don't get people angry without mass movements of population moving people to different parts. We decided we didn't want that. So you've had these frozen conflicts. And what the major shift in this trend last year is that Azerbaijan ended one of theirs, a major part of it. And they did it really quickly with little loss of blood, and they won. And given now that you've got frozen conflicts all across Europe and Asia, how many other countries are going to start thinking, this has been a thorn on our side, this has been a problem for 40 years, I can end this. And this ties into exactly what Simon's talking about in the Balkans, where you've got frozen conflicts there, where people aren't happy with the way things are. Uh, And it even ties into the Ukraine war. But I think if you have a situation where all kinds of small countries, the Azerbaijans of this world, start thinking, I can change my borders by force and win, then what does that do to conflict in the world? And even as we've seen with the Balkans, countries can use small conflicts to as part of their aims and in the process create much larger conflicts or use them as pretexts for much larger conflicts as happened in world war one so you've had this shift this could then lead to much more conflict it reminds me a little bit of the interwar period between world war one and world war two and you have italy comes along and invades ethiopia and gets away with it and nothing happens and Japan comes along and invades Manchuria and gets away with it and nothing happens. Now, I don't think Azerbaijan, you know, I'm not, I'm trying not to make a moral judgment here. I think there's, you know, there are ancestral claims that they have. There are arguments on both sides of that conflict. I'm not saying Azerbaijan is the Nazis, but the point that people can come in and win a conflict and get away with it emboldened everyone else around the world. And it ties in with this. America's not playing the world policeman anymore that you, we just heard from Jeremiah as well. And so I think there's the potential for conflicts to spread and of war. And you know that ties right in with Matthew 24. There'll be wars and rumors of war. You've got aggressive powers. This is the times of the Gentiles. This is America is retreating from the world. And so people are getting their way by force increasingly often. And you see this in Israel, but you see it on some of these smaller conflicts too. Right. War is now an option. War is now on the table for some of these countries in some contexts, and that's a a fearsome thing to realize. So those are your four underrated trends coming out of 2023, heading into 2024 to keep an eye on. There's there's a lot at this point every week to keep an eye on, but we'll do our best to help you with that. We appreciate you listening. That's all the time we have for this week's edition of Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We thank uh, our panelists. We thank uh, Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz for engineering and production. And again, we thank you for listening. Please tune in on Wednesday for the Wednesday edition of Trumpet Hour. And thanks for listening.